Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I will never forget, there was a farmer, one of my first years out here in Ray, I was encouraging him to come to Easter service, and it kind of made me gun-shy to encourage people to come to Easter service after talking to him, but anyways, uh, I asked him, are you coming to church on Easter Sunday? And he's like, well, has the story changed? No. You might be thinking, oh, this is the part where we hear the story that we've always heard on Easter Sunday. And I, and I want to remind us of all this story. And I want to hopefully point out some things in this story that maybe you've never thought about before. It's a powerful story. And part of the power of the story is, is the long time in the making of the story. You ever been really excited for something? Ever looked forward to something? I'm looking forward to my cold being gone. You ever looked forward to a vacation, a trip? You ever looked forward to um, some kind of season in your life being over, being done with? And you've got a lot of, in common because the Jews felt this way for a long time. The Hebrew people, they were set aside by God uh, early on after the Tower of Babel, this crazy incident where the people defied what God said and they decided to build a tower for their own namesake to bring themselves glory and honor and power. And at that point, God scattered them around the world and he gave them their own languages and he kind of said, I'm done with you. I'm away with you. Go serve these other gods. And then in Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abraham and he decides that he's going to create a people for himself, his own people, because all the rest of them, it's like the Romans, Romans one incident of the old Testament where God just gave them over to their sinful nature. He just says, I'm done with you. You guys need to just move on. And he creates for himself a new people, Abraham, he calls. He calls Father Abraham, and if you grew up in church at all, you've sung the song, Father Abraham had many sons and daughters. Many sons had five. We didn't sing daughters, but I think it would be added nowadays. And Abraham had all these sons and daughters, and he became a nation, just like God had promised. And this nation of people, those small at this time, there's about 70 people. They went from Canaan during a great famine. They went from there to Egypt and they went down to into, into Egypt because Egypt, if you remember the story, David or Joseph, excuse me, I don't even remember the story. This guy named Joseph had been sold into slavery and now he is in Egypt and he's like the, the second in command. Only Pharaoh is more powerful than Joseph in Egypt. And Joseph is there, and he's actually of this nation, Israel. And his father and brothers and their wives and their children, they all make their way to Egypt, to the land of Goshen, and they settle there. And in those scriptures, it doesn't say they were supposed to stay there. It seems to be implied they should have headed back after the famine was over. They should have gone back to Canaan. But it was nice, and it was lush, and it was cozy and comfortable in Egypt. So they stayed. And over the time, they became oppressed. 
At some point, there was a Pharaoh who no longer knew Joseph. There was a Pharaoh who no longer knew the story of why these people, these foreigners, were in his land. And so this Pharaoh decided, ah, a nice slave labor force. And he placed them into slavery. And then they, God let them be in slavery for a long, long time. About 400 years. And then he called a man named Moses who was part of this nation. And Moses was called by God. And Moses went to Pharaoh. And you've seen the movie, right? With Charlton Heston. And he goes and he goes to Yul Brenner And he says, let my people go. And he says, no, it's good free labor. I'm going to keep them, right? And then there's all these plagues. And there's this darkness and blood. And then there's this experience where the angel of God tells Moses, you need to tell the people on this day that I'm going to send the angel of death into Egypt and I'm going to kill all the firstborn males of all the livestock, of all the men, of all the, all, all the people in Egypt. I'm going to kill them all, but I will pass over any home that has taken the blood of a lamb and dipped it in a hyssop branch and has put it over the doorpost of their house. So Moses went and he spread the word. He's like, hey, uh, something bad's about to happen and you guys need to do this thing. And the people went and did this thing. And that became called Passover because the angel of death passed over those homes that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the house. And Pharaoh had enough and he sent the people on their way. And they were successful for a small time. They, they were able to conquer a land. Uh, they were able to establish a monarchy. It was really a theocracy, but it, was a, it, it had a king. And the best of them was David. And then his son Solomon was a pretty good guy. And, and so the kingdom had some success for a brief period of time. But after not too long, during Solomon's lifetime, actually, uh, or shortly thereafter, the kingdom was separated into two kingdoms, the north and the south. And, and then God scattered the northern kingdom all around the globe. And then the southern kingdom, they were taken into exile by the Babylonians. And ever since that time, they've not been free, these people, the, the Jews. The Babylonians first persecuted them and took them off to their country. And then the Persians and then the Greeks came through and then the Romans. And this is the place and time where Jesus comes on the scene. About 1,450 years after Moses in the exile, Jesus arrives. But they had these scriptures they had these stories. And if you grew up in ancient Israel, you would have heard the stories regularly because they would have told them to you at synagogue and at home and they would have discussed them. And they kept talking about this, this figure that was like King David, this king who was going to come and he was going to have miraculous powers because this one guy would be able to vanquish the strongest of armies. And you would have heard these stories growing up. You would, have, you would have had hope that Messiah would one day come. Messiah is just Hebrew for king. That this king of David, this one would show up and he would, he would kick butt and take names. He, he would just get rid of all the oppressors. That Israel would now be placed on top. That Israel would be now top dog. And their hopes and their dreams, this was placed into this man. This Messiah. 
And all this expectation has been building for 1,450 years. And then there comes this guy. And for three and a half years, there's been rumors about this man. For three and a half years. And it comes to a head, actually, during this one specific week. This one really important week in the life of Israel. It's called what we call Holy Week. And we've kind of we've divvied it up with Palm Sunday and Monday Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But to them, this was the week of Passover. And for all of your life, you, your family, wanted to go experience a Passover in Jerusalem. And there was actually a law that if you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you had to go with your family and participate in Passover there. In fact, they didn't want anybody to miss Passover. So all the synagogues for the 30 days leading up to Passover would teach about what Passover is. And they would remind the people of that ancient story of Moses and God's rescuing them. And at this point in history, there would be just this fever pitch of patriotism. The Jewish people would just be so excited for the possibility that God, maybe this year, would rescue us like he did long ago. And every single Passover, it was kind of a mess in Jerusalem. The the population would swell eight, ten, twelve times the size of normal in this ancient city. I mean, all the inns would be full. All the guest rooms would be filled. There would be people all over the streets. It would be crowded in the marketplace. The temple would just be bustling with activity. It was crazy. And the Romans always kept a close eye on this time. And then for three and a half years, there's been these rumors. For three and a half years, there's been rumors of a man Rumors that have been spreading, even though he said, hey, don't tell anybody. These rumors have been spreading because he goes around and he like, he would spit on the ground and he would pick up the mud with his hands and then he would make a paste and he would place it on this blind guy's eyes and he would heal him. And the blind man would walk around and he would say, I once was blind, but now I see. There's these other folks. They had these really nice tans now. They'd never had a tan in their life because they had leprosy. They had sores and pus and oozing all over their skin. It was just disgusting and gross and painful and highly contagious. And they had gone and they had lived in these colonies off on their own. And Jesus had come and he had the audacity to touch them. And when he touched them, they're the molecules in their arms would just knit back together perfectly the way they were supposed to be so that they could now wear short sleeves and hang out with everybody else at the ball game. And they were speaking about the miracles of Jesus. One time there was a a crowd of 5,000 people. They were a bit hungry. It was lunchtime. And and Jesus, he took a G.I. Joe lunchbox and he just, out of that little lunchbox, was able to feed 5,000 people. The food just kept coming and coming and coming. People had firsts. They had seconds. They had leftovers. And 5,000 people, they start walking around saying, hey, you got to see this guy. This is amazing. This is a miracle. Could this be Messiah. And then Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and and he almost just like to, just to really emphasize the point. 
in a little town about two miles away from Jerusalem, he goes because a friend of his named Lazarus has died. And he goes to this little town and he has avoided the town. He, he didn't go right when he found out that Lazarus was sick. Uh, he goes after Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. And he goes to that grave and he walks inside. He calls Lazarus forth. And he raises Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus raises Lazarus from the dead. This is just under the nose of the political power in the ancient Near East. This is right under the nose of Jerusalem. And a couple days later, Jesus starts getting all cloak and daggery. He starts saying strange things. I mean, he's trying to figure out because there has actually been word that the Pharisees, that the the teachers of the law, that the Sanhedrin, that those who are in charge of ancient Israel want him dead. And they've actually taken a vow that they're not going to eat or drink until they kill the guy. I don't know how long the drinking thing went, but the eating thing. And Jesus has got to got to figure out how they're going to celebrate Passover because he's got to get his guys into the city to celebrate Passover. And so he starts being all cloak and dagger with his guys and he gets two of his guys and he says, hey, come here. I want you to go in the city. You're going to see a guy that's carrying a pail of water. I want you to follow him. And then he's going to get to this place and he's going to ask you, hey, what are you guys following me for? And when he asks you, what are you following me for? You say, the Lord needs the upper room. And he's going to look both ways, and he's going to say, okay, it's yours. <laughs> what? And he sends these two guys on this little reconnaissance mission, and they get that done. And then there's the whole issue of getting into the town. I mean, all the officials are keeping a watch at the gates because this is a walled city. They want to know the comings and goings of people. And so he's got to figure out a way to get into the city. So he gets into another couple of his guys, and he says, hey, guys, I want you to go steal a car. A brand new car. It's never been used before. Okay, they didn't have cars back then, but it was a donkey. It was pretty close. It was a mode of transportation. And he says, I want you to go steal a donkey. And the guys are like, hey, that's totally against everything you've ever told us. And he's like, just keep listening. And so the guys go, and he says, when you get in there, I want you to grab the donkey, and I want you to just start walking away with it. Okay. Uh, and he says, when somebody asks you, what are you doing? Just tell them the Lord needs it. Okay. So they go into this town, and they see the donkey. And could you just imagine? Use your imagination for a moment. Be a couple of those guys. I'd be the guy that's like, oh, there it is. Hey, uh, you go grab it. I'll just stand here and keep watch for you. And the guy, he goes, and he grabs the donkey. And sure enough, somebody's like, hey, you're stealing the donkey. And the guy's like, uh, the Lord needs it? Oh, okay, cool. And he's like, what else does this work on, right? <laughs> So he walks out with the donkey. And then they put Jesus on the donkey. And then they have this triumphal entry into the city. 
And the crowds are shouting. One guy, he gets a little excited. I mean, because you don't know what to say at those kind of things. Jesus is staging this parade to get himself into the city. And all the people, they just are excited because all this patriotism has been building because it's been 1,450 years since they've been free. And they've been hearing stories about this guy who can do miraculous things. And they're thinking, this is the guy. This is the time. The Romans are going down. And one guy, he's brave enough. He yells out, Hosanna! Which to you and I is like, that's a churchy word. We don't know what to do with that. But it's Hebrew and it means save now. Save now! Hosanna! Another guy, he picks it up. Yeah, Hosanna! Save now! And somebody else, he gets a, a little bit more aggressive with it. He says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now it's getting a little more raucous. And then one of them says, save us now, King David. And then they start waving palm branches. They didn't have their own little Jewish flags back then. The palm branch was the closest thing they had to a Jewish flag. They grabbed these things. They start waving them. And this is a big parade that's now starting to head into Jerusalem. And the people are yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there is this fever pitch excitement that this is the guy. This is Messiah, that he is about to bring down the Romans and the Jews. The Hebrews are going to be top dog again in Jerusalem. Well, the things don't go as they had hoped. (laughs) I mean, less than a week, Jesus is condemned to die the death of a criminal on on a cross. And on Friday, the Romans make good on that. They beat him. They place a crown of thorns upon his head. They mock him. They ridicule him. They say, hey, you saved others. Why don't you save yourself? If you're the Messiah, why don't you come on down from there? In fact, they actually put on his cross the thing that his crime was. was king of the Jews. That's what he died for. That was his crime. It was written in Latin, in Aramaic, and in Greek. And imagine the disciples felt like a lot of us felt after the Broncos just got it kicked out of them by the Seahawks. Because that week had started with great expectation. That week had started with, we're going to be top dog. We're just going to walk all over the people. We're going to take charge. Everything's going to go the way we want it to go. And then that opening snap, right? And you're like, oh, man. Oh, gosh. God in heaven, please, not again. Not like what happened against the Giants. Not what like happened against the 49ers. Not like what, you know, I mean, I don't even want to repeat to us all what happened. And you can just think that the Hebrews are thinking, oh, man, not again. I mean, this guy actually fed people out of a G.I. Joe lunchbox. This guy actually healed people. This guy actually raised a dead guy. What on earth happened? And then he said goofy things the night he was betrayed. I mean, we've recounted that. We've talked about that. He said, I will be betrayed. Come on, you're Messiah. I must be handed over to the Gentiles so that they can execute me. They can crucify me. Please. Did Jesus get into the wine early? What is going on? 
I'm sure they were utterly confused. They could not hear what he was saying. Because it was not what they expected. It's like when the pundits said, the Broncos probably will lose to the Seahawks. Nobody out here thought, oh, right, that's going to happen. We, none of us felt that way. And here, Jesus is dead. His body was removed. He's placed in a borrowed tomb. And you're the Messiah, you don't have a tomb. And he's in this tomb, and it's silent Saturday, and it's the Sabbath, and they can't do anything that day. And that's where we come to our passage of Scripture we want to look at just briefly. Luke 24. On the first day of the week, on Sunday, very early in the morning, The women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, wouldn't you wonder? Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. Judas has killed himself at this point. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. There's a couple of quick lessons I want us to see in this passage of Scripture. One is, they treated Jesus as if he was dead. Because they denied the resurrection. The women went with spices. They were ready to prepare his body for burial. They were in a hurry to get his body down off the cross because it was Passover. They had to observe Passover. And they were in a hurry to get back early in the morning to get him ready for burial, a proper burial. They had neglected this. They had the spices. They were ready to go to the tomb to find a body. And many of you deny that Christ raised from the dead. You are expecting to go to the tomb and to find a body. And the reason we think this is because we are scientific, smart, Western people. Dead people don't just rise from the dead. And Luke is anticipating, 2,000 years ago, Luke is anticipating your skepticism. You see, it's always been hard to believe somebody would rise from the dead. Even the followers who had been told he would rise from the dead didn't believe that he was going to rise from the dead. They went back on the third day ready to find a body. And it's not there. 
They had spices. And the way that Luke is preparing you to understand that this is a historical fact is he names names. Did you see that? He names names of the women who are there. He doesn't say, well, there's some women that showed up. Well, there's some guy I know. <laughs> Whenever a preacher starts that story, well, there's a guy, right? Or your friend that starts that story. Well, there's this fella I know. Either they're talking about themselves and they don't want you to know it's them, or it's a fake story. But here, Luke gives names. And scholars, I mean, every Easter, some pundit on TV, on CNN or, or on MSNBC or some television show is going to come out and say, well, you know, the scriptures were written 40, 50, 60 years after the incidents that they described. So therefore, we have no idea if this is true. Okay, let's pretend that we can think about this for a moment. If something happened 45 years ago, that would make it 1970. I was born in 1969. That'd make it 1970. And let's say that something, a book came out today that claimed that Abraham Lincoln started to appear to people in Ray, Colorado in 1970. Now, let's not use Ray. Let's use Yuma, because who knows what, what kind of crazy stuff would come out of there, right? There's a book that comes out. It's on Amazon. Everybody wants to read the book, Abraham Lincoln in Yuma in 1970. Some of you were born in Yuma. Some of you, your family's from Yuma. Some of you know folks from Yuma. Some of you drive through Yuma. If this book came out, what would you do? Would you just go read it and go, wow, I never knew that. That is amazing. Wow, how, how is it I never heard about that? I, maybe you'd do that. I know me. I'd get in my car and go find somebody in Yuma who was there in 1970 and ask them, did Abraham Lincoln really show up and start talking to people and doing stuff? <laughs> no. Okay, maybe you weren't in town on that day. I'm going to go find some other people. And you walk around and you start to, you go back, you read the newspaper. You go back, you start investigating it because you're not just going to take some book's word on this. You're going to go talk to some names, some people who are there. You're going to ask them questions. That's what Luke does. He gives some names. Check the story out. I'd go check out the story. And besides, remember the, the, the situation that Jesus was killed in. It doesn't benefit any of the establishment for this little rumor to get started that he rose from the dead. Uh, I think there'd be a government conspiracy to keep that news from happening. In fact, we know it from another gospel that was told because the Jews said, oh, remember, one time he, come, he said he'd rise from the dead. And so the Romans decided to put uh, soldiers at the tomb. They put a seal of Rome. Don't mess with this or you'll die on a cross. And Luke says here, check out the stories of the women. Go find out. And this isn't the only place this is talked about. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he appeared to over 500 people at one time. And those words were written 20 years after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's like Paul's going, dude, there's got to be one of those 500 people that are still alive. Go find them and ask them. The Bible has never once cowered from the eye of the critic. 
That's one thing we see in that you can deny that Jesus, you can treat him like he's, he's dead by denying the resurrection. There's two other ways that you can treat Jesus as if he's dead. By, I like this phrase where Luke says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And there's other ways that you and I can look for the living among the dead. One way we do this is we fail to understand the meaning of the resurrection. And we see this in the women. They did all three of these, by the way. This is nothing new. This is not new territory. The women did this as well. As well. And partly why they did this is because they misunderstood why Jesus died. Number one, it just took them completely by surprise. Because remember where we were just a few days ago? It was Palm Sunday, stolen donkey, coming into town. Hosanna, son of David. Turn of events in just a few days, crucified, dead. And the angels, they remind them, the Son of Man, they say in verse 7, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Did you see the, the really important word there? It's a really small word, probably not one you pay much attention to, must. The Son of God must. You see, we fail to treat Jesus as if he is risen from the dead when we fail to understand why he died. Many of us are on this whole uh, saving ourselves campaign. We're on this whole kick of trying to make sure that we're good enough that God will have to take us when he comes again. And we do this in so many ways. I mean, we, we, we do this in how we handle ourselves in our business. We do this in how we look in our families. We do this in how we take care of our homes. You know, we clean up really well on the outside. And, and we do all these things. And we are on this self-salvation project. And we think, you know, if I'm good enough, God's just not going to be able to not have me on his team someday. If I just do enough, God will accept me. If I just do enough, God will love me. If I just do enough. And if you believe that, you don't understand why Jesus died. See, many people who get stuck in this, they think, well, Jesus died as a good role model, an example of how to suffer and suffer well. An example because, you know, he didn't go around going, oh, I hate this. And this is so terrible. And my back is killing me. And man, my life is horrible. We think, wow, if he can go through all of that and not complain and not fuss and worry, then I can go through my little troubles too. And we treat Jesus like he's this example. And that's how the women were treating him. They went in reverence to the grave. They were going to go and honor his memory and honor the body and place spices on him. And the angels want to help them understand. No, he said he must die. And this is really part of the offense of the gospel because some of you think he doesn't need to die for me. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. But the scriptures teach us that he must die for sinners. That it's the only way to have relationship with God the Father is through the person of Jesus Christ. And if you fail to grasp this, you fail to understand how, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You fail to understand what it means to have salvation. You fail to understand what it means to be born again. You fail to understand what it means to be saved. 
Jesus says. This is, I know it's Jesus speaking because my words are in red. He says, son of man must die. He did that for you and for me. If you don't understand that Jesus must die as a substitute in your place for your sins, that, that God has to, that Jesus Christ came to live the life that you and I could not live and to die the death that we must die. And that Jesus came to be a substitute in your place. If you fail to understand that, then you are looking for the living among the dead. You are denying the resurrection of its true meaning and purpose and power. There's a final way that the women went off looking for the living amongst the dead. And this is where, this is the one that, and you are in this category if to the first two you said, well, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And the second one you said, well, I know why he died. I know he died in my place for my sin. And the resurrection places God's stamp of approval on that death. And that through his death and resurrection, now I have hope. If you said, yeah, I get those. I understand that I can't save myself, that I am saved by God, that I'm not saved by serving God, but that I am saved by a God serving me. I mean, if you say yes to those two things, and I get that, I understand that, you're in the third category. And the third category is we can be like the women and we can miss the spiritual reality of the resurrection. We can go to the tomb and perhaps you have a loved one that you go and you visit their grave. And this can be a very inspiring experience when we go to the grave of a loved one. We, We can experience you know, some kind of emotion, some kind of memories, but we don't experience them. We experience a memory of them. We might bring to mind, oh, that one time where, you know, grandma did that for me, or that one time where grandpa did that for me, or the the time that, (laughs) that was a funny story. But we don't experience them. We experience a memory. And that's what the women did. They go to the tomb and they are going to honor and interact with the memories of Jesus. Hey, remember that one time that was so funny when he did the, the spit and the mud and man, stuck it on the blind guy's eye and the blind guy was blind so he didn't know what was going on. It's kind of funny. Remember those times that we thought he was a ghost because he's out walking on the water and we were all freaked out. You know, I think in the King James, it says, freaketh me out. And remember those times. And if, if you just go to Christ's grave, if you just come to this tomb, and yes, you think that he's risen from the dead. And yes, you believe that he died for your sins on the cross. But if you come here and you don't experience him, you just, you just come and you remember You interact with the memory of him. But when you pray, you don't experience the risen Lord. Remember what the angel said. Why are you looking here? The implication is, go look elsewhere. He's out there to be found. He's alive. He's risen. And you can't find him here amongst dead people. 
And some of us are guilty of just experiencing a memory and a warm fuzzy on Easter, but we are not transformed by the reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave, that he is personable, that he is available, that he is there for you. And he wants relationship with you. And some of us are good about going through the church emotions and, and going through the Bible motions and going through the prayer motions and all this stuff. But when was the last time you felt the presence of Christ? When was the last time that you sensed a strength that was beyond you? When was the last time that you had to just get, dig deep in the, re, in the reserves and you knew it wasn't you because you're not that deep? And there was something there deeper than you. Not just a something, there was a someone. See, these are the ways that today each one of us is in one of these camps and perhaps some of us are in more than one of these camps. These are ways that we can go looking for the living amongst the dead and we can treat Jesus like he's still in the grave. And I want to suggest to you that each of us each of us need to experience the transforming power of Christ in a significant and powerful way today. Whether you've been coming to church forever, like me, like the first Sunday after I was born, I was there. I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church for years. Or if this is one of the few times you'd show up because that's what good Americans do. Both those people, both me who's been coming forever and those who show up because it's the American thing to do, we need to experience Christ. We need to encounter the gospel. We need to have an experience that just transforms us to the core. Which group are you in? See, I'm so glad that this story did not end with Jesus, his body rotting in a grave like all the other founders of religions. And he rose again. 